we know from our research that when you ask what will make this a great conversation, most people will give you an answer, which is fantastic, but only 28% of people will ask the opposite question, what will make this a good conversation from your perspective. So if they don't ask that question, offer it so they are clear your compass setting too. Hey, it's David, and you're listening to Leadership Without Losing Your Soul, your source for practical leadership inspiration, tools, and strategies you can use to achieve transformational results without sacrificing your humanity or your mind in the process. Hey, welcome to the show. Well into season 13 here, and I am so excited to introduce you to our guest today. And by way of introduction, uh, listener, I want you to imagine a world where you have shorter, more productive meetings, fewer mishaps and misunderstandings, uh, healthier relationships at work, higher employee trust, and you're able to reduce unnecessary rework. So if those sound appealing, you are in the right place because our guest today is going to help us get there by improving one critical communication skill. So our guest's name today is Oscar Trimboli. He's an author, globally renowned keynote speaker, and host of the Apple award-winning podcast, Deep Listening. He's released a new book here called How to Listen, Discover the Hidden Key to Better Communication. Oscar has been working with teams and leaders at large organizations who are realizing that they need to respond to what he calls the listening crisis. And he's going to help us unlock our listening superpowers with practical and pragmatic insights that will help you notice when you aren't listening and what to do about it. Oscar lives in Sydney, Australia, where he loves afternoon walks with his wife, Jenny, and their dog, Kilimanjaro, which I think, Oscar, that might be one of my favorite dog names I have ever heard. On the weekends, you'll find him playing Lego with his grandchildren. Oscar, welcome to Leadership Without Losing Your Soul. G'day, David. Looking forward to listening to your questions today. Well, I'm looking forward to listening to your answers, and I hope to do more listening than talking for sure. So, Oscar, as, as we get to know you a little bit, uh, can you take us back to whatever would be your earliest memory of yourself as a leader, whatever that means for you, as early as it might be? Yeah, have to zoom into a very cold, wintry football field in uh, Sydney. And I, I that season, I had to become the captain of the football team. And when I talk about football, for those of you who are international, I mean soccer. <laughs> uh, the game that's played with the foot and the ball. Uh, that's why it's called football. And uh, kind of thrust into uh, a leadership situation very early on where our team was struggling. Uh, we had many nationalities on our team. We lived in the suburbs where the first migrants come to Australia. And uh, I realized very quickly that words didn't mean as much as example. And leading by example, when it was hard for me, I wasn't a strong runner, but I had to make sure I was running at the front of the team when we're training for running. When we were doing ball drills, I had to lead by example and listen to the coach and make sure we were doing what we were doing. But also uh, trying to tune in and listen, notice what other people were struggling with and go over and help them out when the coach was looking after a different group of players. So for me, it's always a wintry football field that uh, leading by example was the thing I learned very, very quickly. A wintry football field leading by example. And I couldn't help but notice that word listen came up several times in your description of what that leadership looked like for you. Yeah. And it was noticing the struggle, not just with myself, but it was noticing the struggle with others. If you can imagine a coach who's lived in Australia their entire life. They only know one language, which is English. But you've got somebody who's just arrived from Argentina, somebody who's just arrived from uh, Brazil, uh, one speaking Portuguese, one speaking Spanish, somebody who's just arrived from Vietnam and speaking Vietnamese as their home language. Soccer's a very universal game and making sure that the players who were struggling with the instruction. The coach could give it, but the coach has got to look after 14 players in, in the team. And what I learned very quickly is I needed to be useful and kind of 
jump over and help out and reinforce the technique, most of the time you're getting the signal back from the exercise not being undertaken successfully, but equally you're getting the feedback quite quickly from the face of the person as they're hearing the instruction, not in their home language. And their nonverbals on their face will quickly give away whether they have understood the instruction or not. So I got very good at hand signals. I got very good at using my hands on the ball. I got very good at uh, nodding and smiling and confirming uh, with some rudimentary stuff. And yeah, I started to learn a bit of Portuguese. I started to learn a bit of Vietnamese. I started to learn a bit of Spanish along the way as well. Oh, that, that, the smile on your face there, that sounds like it's a pleasant memory. Yeah. And, you know, we became a winning team in that year and we became a winning team in that year because nobody understood our system. The, the way we played <laughs> was this melting pot of international energy, enthusiasm, and people who were in a country trying to prove something, maybe they couldn't prove themselves at school, but they could definitely prove themselves on the football field. Oh, fantastic. Well, I, I'm picking up some of the elements that are in your book. Again, just to, for our listeners, we're talking to Oscar Tromboli. The book is called How to Listen, Discover the Hidden Key to Better Communication. And this is a master class on listening. And I've been looking forward to our conversation because I know just in reading the book, there are so much that, that I have to learn, uh, yet to learn, don't have to, but it's available to learn uh, about listening and being a better listener. And it's funny, as I cracked open the book, Oscar, I was thinking to myself, all right, so how to listen. Cool. That's the title of the book. Why? Why listen? And there it is. Chapter one is titled, Why Listen? And then boom, it hits me with the chapter one subtitle, Listening is the Willingness to Have Your Mind Changed. And I mean, I'm like, what is that? Seven, eight words into the book? And I'm already leaning back going, wow. Okay, <laughs> here we go. So help us out. Why listen? In business, the cost of not listening is very obvious, yet it's not measured. If we lose great customers, it's probably because we didn't listen to what they needed. If we've got the opposite, and this is even worse, you've got terrible customers who stay with you who are incredibly unprofitable because you're not listening to what they mean, you're only listening to what they say. And every time you bring back a, a product or a service or, or a work output, they say, no, 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 that's not quite what I meant. I meant this. And you go back and you do rework and all of a sudden your profit goes down as a result. It shows up in great employees that leave before they want to, we want to, because they're frontline managers and leaders weren't listening to their career aspirations. It shows up in projects that are late, behind schedule, over budget. It shows up in low quality. And at the biggest level of all, it shows up in poor reputation. It may be a result of regulators having negative findings on you or the media writing a negative story about the way the organisation works. Honestly, I'm biased. I, I can see the cost of not listening pretty much in every problem in the organisations that we're lucky enough to work with. Yet, it's not enough to know that's the cost of not listening. It's the willingness to change your mind. It doesn't mean you have to change your mind, but it's bringing a mindset that's open, that's curious, and that's flexible. Meaning, as you approach a conversation, you may have a position that you start the conversation with, but you're not so rigid that you can't adjust by, based on what you're hearing. So the cost of not listening is huge. There is so much to unpack in all of this, and, and I can't help but to look at this work and, and read your book through my own lens. It's the, it's the filter, it's the brain I have to, to read it through. Uh, and recognizing that when I am not being a good listener, as, as I approach your book and think about, I want to be a better listener than I am, the times where I am not, it's typically because what you said, I'm coming with a very fixed 
perspective, uh, maybe feeling insecure or that I have to um, justify my own position. And so I'm really just listening for the opportunities to try to prove how good I am or what I'm doing well or those sorts of things or why I was right, you know, uh, or if you would just understand me, you know, when I'm not being a good listener, I'm always coming with, I, it seems I'm always coming with those things. And one of the comments that you make in this first chapter is that the difference between hearing and listening is action. So that willingness to have your mind change doesn't mean we're going to change it, but how does that interact with the difference between hearing and listening is action and then I want to get into some of those barriers that we we can encounter. Yeah, the action you might take is just to be flexible. The action you might take is just to be curious a little longer. The action you might take is just to be open to another perspective. You, We all walk into conversations with very rigid positions. And these are our assumptions. These are our unconscious biases that are built up through our family upbringing. You've heard them already from me, you know, diverse groups are more and higher performing than non-diverse groups, right? That's a, that's a conscious bias for me, but for some people, it's an unconscious bias. Our education, our workplace experience, all these things start to build our filters in, in the way we start to listen in the conversation. And, and for many of us, we're, we're not even aware of that. So I want to give you just a really practical tip and the tip is this, most of us don't have a compass for the conversation. Most of us don't know where North is in the, in the dialogue. And the reason we don't is we don't ask this very simple question. And the, and the question that I recommend you ask at the beginning of the conversation, or if it's a planned conversation, ideally before the conversation even commences, but most of our conversations are spontaneous rather than planned. So use this question at the beginning of the conversation. And this is not the agenda of the meeting, by the way. Don't confuse the two. The, this will help set the North Star. And when we ask this question and get the response back from the group or the individual we're talking to, this becomes a way to calibrate and check through the meeting the quality of our listening. And it signals to them immediately that we're listening to them. So here's the question. The question is really simple. What will make this a good conversation? Mm. Now, I want to make it a very important distinction. It is not what would make this a good conversation for you. We want to make sure that they understand that there's you and there's me, and in between you and me is the dialogue. The dialogue is what we want to progress Imagine two overlapping circles. We're looking at the overlap here. The question is designed for the overlap. So we know from our research that when you ask this question, what will make this a great conversation for you? Sorry, what will make this a great conversation? Most people will give you an answer, which is fantastic, but only 28% of people will ask the opposite question. That would say, well, what will make this a good conversation from, from your perspective, David? So if they don't ask that question, offer it so they are clear your compass setting too. Now, the reason we use this question, it doesn't matter what the answer is. Sometimes people get stuck in a spiral and they get into a really repetitive pathological kind of story that they tell over and over and over and over again. I've and never, ever done that. Never done that. <laughs> <laughs> and ironically, the reason that happens is because people don't feel heard the first time they told the story. Right. So imagine we're in a one-hour meeting. At the 15-minute mark in that one-hour meeting, just check in and say, hey, David, at the beginning of the conversation, you said this would make it a good conversation. How are we tracking? Uh, a couple of things will happen. They'll go, hey, we're right on track. Thanks for checking. But in doing so, you've signaled already that you'd listen to what they said at the beginning of the conversation. And great listeners change the way the speaker communicates their ideas. They'll relax, they'll slow down, and they'll start to say not just what they say the first time, but they'll say what they think and what they mean. Sometimes, about a third of the cases based on our research, the speaker will simply say, David, I've got everything we need. We can probably wrap up. Is there anything else you want to cover off? Don't we all love that? A shorter meaning. And then the final scenario is 
David, I've cut off everything I need. But what I've realized is we haven't discussed something really crucial, really important, really vital. It's this. Can we use the balance of our time? Finally, as you get to the back end of the meeting, roughly the 45-minute mark, just, again, check in and go, if we had this conversation again, is there anything you'd change? Now, what we're not asking is about content. We're asking about process. And this question is the more powerful version of, have you got any feedback for me? <laughs> have you got any way uh, we could improve? Yeah, most people are gonna, not going to respond to that. But if you make it feed forward rather than feedback at that point, the conversation improves the very next time and you build stronger relationships as a result. With this navigation tool in your back pocket, your listening compass, meetings are shorter. You'll have less of them because you'll get to the vital points and they'll change the way they describe a concept. They'll move from what they think the very first time to describe what really matters to them and what they mean. That's one of the hidden keys to better communication. That's a powerful question. What will make this a good conversation? And so what I'm hearing, if I hear you correctly, Oscar, you're saying that the majority of people will tend to answer that from their own perspective. And then some will follow up. Some will, uh, some presenters will ask, answer about the conversation itself. And mm -hmm. then for those that don't, you then can volunteer and here's my perspective on what will make this a good conversation. Yeah. So uh, a simple thing might be, you know, what will make this a great conversation is I would like to use clean and non-violent language. That's, that's some things that I talk about very regularly. I, I'd like this conversation to be clean. I'd like this conversation to be truthful. I'd like this conversation to have integrity. And to be honest, a lot of people are often shocked that I would use those labels. And yet when it gets to the bit of the conversation that matters, I, I can see people adjusting, going, okay, he wants clear, he wants truthful, he wants integrity. And all of a sudden they change the way they describe their idea. Mm. So it's taking responsibility for the conversation as a whole, as a mm. participant in that conversation and inviting others to do the same. And in group context, if you're the host of the meeting, the leader of this meeting, you might go, am I really going to go around the room and ask everybody this question? Yes. And the reason you do it, it's a warm-up exercise for the introverts. It gives them a really safe way to start to contribute to the dialogue early on. And it also gives the extroverts their quick start that they need. Now, now you simply say, look, in one sense, what would make this a great conversation? So, so you've already given it a limitation, as opposed to in a one-on-one, -on -one, you may not put that limitation in there. And when I'm hosting group meetings, I would say in one sentence, in one breath, in the subject line, in an email, what would make this a great conversation? And all of a sudden, they're like, okay, we've got a limitation. And for most people, they're going to talk into that really effectively. Now, I don't ask that question in group meetings for me. I do but that's not its power. Its potency is good hosts get the participants to listen to them. Great hosts get the participants to listen to each other. And the reason we ask this question is that when somebody is engaging in some kind of dialogue, there is a context now for the other participants to ask useful questions based on the North Star on their listening compass, which is for Mary, a good conversation would be this. How can I contribute to that? Wonderful. There, I, I'm, I'm wanting to jump so far ahead now. My, my, my brain is going in 15 different directions, Oscar. Is your, where Where is your brain at, David? It, right it is now. so many different places. So um, one of the places is coming back to something that you said uh, a moment ago, with regard to the fact that when we don't feel heard, we can get we can cycle. And so, and kind of, and you can tell it's happening because somebody just gets round and round and round again. 
I know that I've been there when I don't feel heard as a listener. And I know that you've got, we're jumping a little ways ahead here, but since we're on the topic, we, we can do that. As a listener, how can I help people? How can I ensure that the person I am in dialogue with that I am listening to is heard or feels heard for, from a productive standpoint? And what is, where is my responsibility in there and how can I best show up as a good listener in that, that capacity? I think this really simple bit of neuroscience will help everyone who's listening right now. And hello for you listening right now, because some of you may be cooking a meal, you may be commuting, you may be exercising, you may be in the garden, you may be distracted. Now's a good time to pay attention. Uh, if I was listening to myself, this is the bit I'd really dial into. When it comes to the speaker, they can speak at between 125 to 150 words per minute. Yet they can think up to nine times and for some people up to 16 times faster than what they can speak. So that means the very first thing that somebody says could be 14% of what they're thinking. If you want to engage with a speaker who's in this repetitive story cycle with the very first thing they say, you're missing 86% of the conversation. Good listeners listen to what people say and great listeners notice what people don't say. And if you can help them express the bit they haven't said, They'll feel seen, heard, and valued because they're saying what they think and what they mean, not the first thing they type in an email. You know, most people will adjust what they send before they actually press the send button. Yet when it comes to verbal dialogue, <laughs> we don't get the chance to adjust. And great, a listener adopts a mindset of, Although that's the first thing they've said, I'm sure there's more they want to say. And you have some suggestions on how to do that. So the first thing to remember is that if they get to round two or round three, typically their sentences become shorter they become more specific because they've had the chance to say it out aloud. Now, for introverts, typically, they're going to take two rounds to do it because they are thinking synthesizers. Extroverts may take three rounds because they need to talk out aloud to verbalise their ideas. It doesn't make either approach correct or incorrect. You just need to be conscious of that as a listener. So let me just give you three really simple questions that you can ask that will help the speaker express what they think and what they mean. If you're in a work environment that deals with complex, collaborative, resource-constrained situations, which I would suggest is a majority of workplaces, uh, these questions will be helping everybody to be more commercial. These questions are not therapy. When I talk about listening in the workplace, I have a very commercial lens on it. I literally think of a PL and I think of a balance sheet while I'm thinking about listening. Because one thing you don't know about me is I started life office an audit clerk in an accounting firm. Unfortunately, six weeks in, uh, my manager discovered I had dyscalculus, which means I turned the numbers around. So my accounting career was over before it started. <laughs> But what I did was partner with finance people to help with my blind spot around finances. When you ask these questions, you can discover the things my manager did in, a, in that conversation on that day to discover I had dyscalculus. Questions with more than eight words are typically biased. That means be conscious of your question length in certain contexts. Bias questions are not wrong. They're not incorrect, though some people use them in the wrong context. Bias questions are really good when you're getting towards decision-making. You need to allocate resources 
this is a crucial time for balance questions. When you're listening for what somebody's not said, open, neutral, unbiased questions are what we're looking for. So these three questions I'm going to give you are very much shorter. It also makes them really easy to remember. The first question keeps the conversation going in the same direction. It's a north question. Remember, we have our listening compass. It continues the energy of the speaker in the same direction. I'm going to give you an east-west question, which is a question for listening for difference. The first question I'm offering you, listening for similarity. Next question, listening for difference. Most people don't even realize there's a difference between the way you listen for similar and different as well. So the first question is, and what else? Now, please don't say it like that. <laughs> You'll sound like a robot. <clears throat> so say a version of it. The way I say it would be, David, I'm really curious. Is there anything else? Wow, that's fascinating. Is there anything else you want to say about that? And most speakers will think that's the biggest gift of all. And they'll use phrases immediately like, and you'll notice this question has an impact on them because the head will tilt on their spine differently. They may take a breath in, but verbally, the kind of language they'll use is, hmm, actually, now that I think about it a little longer, hmm, there's a vital thing I haven't discussed, eh? Hmm. There is one person we haven't even covered off. Wonderful. That's the and what else. So these questions have energy. They keep the speaker going in the same direction and they get the next 125 words out. Then there's the tell me more. Wow, I'm fascinated. Tell me more about that. The, the tell me more, again, it keeps them going in the same direction. It gets them just to think about it in a little different way. Now let's think about that east-west question. Go ahead. Yeah, Oscar, I wanted to clarify. So when we say, and what else, tell me more is a variation of that or a follow-up too as they share no, the Yeah, they, they, these are questions that are keeping us going north-south. So okay. So those either are of those that. two questions will be fine. Okay. Now, if we want to go east-west, we want to get people out of their direction and we want them to look, if it's a very inward-looking discussion, we want them to get them looking outwards. If it's a very internal discussion, we want them outside the organisational boundaries. If it's all about them, we want them to get them to think about the team. We want them to notice difference. If you're working with a leader, the perspective may be, hmm, what would the competitor think? So this is getting their dialogue direction going in a completely different direction. So the frame is really simple. And what would X think? The X is competitor, regulator, customer. Uh, it could be the media, it could be an employee, it could be a shareholder, it could be the government. And what would X think? What would your spouse think if an employee is having a conversation with you about work-life balance? That, that could be a good way to get them thinking in a completely different direction. In a, in a situation where you're trying to progress a business case, a common question that isn't asked is, what will finance think about this? Oh, yeah, we haven't even thought about finance. But it's very short. And what would X think? And that gives them permission in that moment, instead of being rushed, just to pause, step back, have a look at it. Tell me more. And what else? What would X think? The final tip I would give you for bonus points, the most potent thing you can do to listen to what's not said is 
use this phrase. It's the shortest, it's the most powerful. Done well, it's liberating. Done poorly, it's intimidating. Here it is. Now, it's no coincidence that the word silent and the word listen share the identical letters. In the West, we have this awkward relationship with silence. We call it the pregnant pause, the deafening silence, the awkward silence. In high context cultures in the East, China, Japan, Korea, the indigenous communities of Australia, the Aboriginal communities, the Eskimo, the Inuit of, of North America, a silence is a sign of wisdom, respect, and authority. And it's a magnet to draw more out of the conversation, whether that's an individual or a group. Silence centers the conversation. It helps reset for the thinker and it helps the speaker express what they think and what they mean. Very simple questions to put in your back pocket, but very potent. Now, I'm a lazy listener and I use those questions very, very regularly. And people see me in the second half of the workshop, when I explain these questions, they all go, oh, it's like the magician has shown how his tricks are being done. <laughs> yet, yet from that point on, I'll still say, tell me more. And they still come back with a big smile on their face once they know how this question is being used because they can see the impact for the speaker when you ask this question. The speaker tends to get deeper into what it means for them, why it matters for them. And when you unlock that, you stop this pathological story going around and round and round and round in circles because they've actually been heard about what it means for them. Such a powerful set of questions to be able to help somebody feel heard, not continue around and be able to make something productive based on what, once we've got all that out. That said, in your bonus one, you just mentioned with silence, it can be very useful and it can be, if, if when applied judiciously or skillfully, uh, and I'm not re remembering the exact words you used, but you said it can also not work as well if unskillfully used, something to that effect. Liberating or intimidating. Liberating or intimidating. How do we, as a good listener, make it more liberating and less intimidating. I suppose you might be going for intimidating, but we're not Darth Vader. Let's go with liberating. No, we're, definitely, we're definitely not going for intimidating. Just practice the pause with someone you know and trust well, and just hold that pause for one second longer than you normally would. And very quickly, that person will help you ca calibrate where it's too long. Uh, Two minutes of pause, it's likely to be too long and intimidating. <laughs> but if if your normal pause cycle is one to two seconds, just make it two to three seconds. If your normal pause cycle is two to three, make it four to five. You will get a gauge very quickly. Now, if you really trust this person, you'll simply say, hey, David, I'm trying to improve the way I communicate with others. And one of the things I'm working on is improving my use of silence to create space for you to express your thoughts. Today, I'm just going to experiment with that. If it feels a bit awkward, that's why. Uh, I'd love to catch at the back end of a conversation how useful that's been for you. Now, that's for someone you know and trust really well. You know, you're not going to do the pause practice for the very first time you do a job interview with a new employee when you're meeting your ideal customer, when you're meeting a government delegation, that's not the time to practice. Practice in safe environments that are trusting and then start to build your muscle. Equally in group conversations, the problem isn't your pausing. You know that you want to pause. What you wanna do is role model that for the group. So, an example might be if you're hosting a meeting and somebody cuts off somebody mid-sentence, as an example, your role as the host is to allow that person who cut off to fully express their idea because you shouldn't cut somebody off in the middle of a breath or in the middle of a sentence. But when they pause, that's the time to interrupt. Just catch them and just say, thanks, Alice. You make a, an, an important point. 
I'm just not sure that Mary had completed her ID, Mary. Ah, and Alice will notice you've acknowledged Alice, but equally you've come back and created the space. I see a lot of hosts because I work with a lot of boards, chairs, executive teams where that cycle of jumping in, jumping in, jumping in is something that isn't role modeled by the meeting host. When it is role modeled, the norms of the dialogue have a space in which to land. If you just leave Alice going with the idea, the only signal you send to everybody else in the meeting is, oh, look, I'm not going to speak up because I'm just going to get cut off like Mary just did in that situation with Alice. So be noticing your role to set an example. And way back, David, this is back on the soccer field in a winter's day, it's like when the manager had given instruction, I would have to go and work with some people where the language wasn't clear. And unless you're clear, clean, and explicit about how we're dialoguing, it could be really unproductive. So role model how to use space as a leader. The other thing I would say for leaders, how to listen for silence just keep a track, just draw a little handwritten map around the room and keep a map of who hasn't spoken. Don't cold call on them and go, so David, what do you think? Because <laughs> for a lot of people, they are deeply thinking. But you could say, uh, we're almost getting towards the end of this topic. David, I'm just going to come to you shortly I'd love to get your perspective from the customer's point of view because you always have a great perspective there or any other perspective you want to offer. Now, please continue, Mary, and off Mary goes, but now you're giving David enough time to think and you're giving him a context to think through as well. And he's probably going to bring a potent perspective on something we haven't even discussed about the customer. Silence isn't just silence in dialogue. Silence is who haven't we heard from in the conversation as well. And that technique that you just described is so potent and powerful, both for in-person meeting facilitation, but also online and in virtual yes. meetings. And mm -hmm. I've seen it used very effectively in those contexts too. So this is a, a practical, pragmatic, rich episode. Oscar's given us so much and we're not done yet talking with Oscar Tromboli, the author of How to Listen, Discover the Hidden Key to Better Communication. And I am lamenting the fact that I'm looking at the clock and like, oh my, we've only scratched the surface of this book. There is so much. So Oscar, I'm, I've got a couple of things that I want to uh, guide us to that I, as, that I highlighted and, and so on as I read. But before we do that, um, tell our listeners where to connect with you, uh, the wealth of resources you've got, anything at all. Where, where do we go? Where do we find your book? Where do we find you? Uh, as much as I'd love you to connect with me, uh, I'd rather you connect with your listening and discover what those barriers are to your listening. So if you visit listeningquiz.com, you can take a 20-question a, a assessment. Take seven minutes maximum. On average, it's four and a half. You'll get a five-page report. And that will tell you what your primary, secondary listening barriers are and some of the tailored tips we've just discussed based on your listening barriers uh, will give you five tips on how to improve your listening before, during and after the conversation. And on that report is a link to all the other ways you can connect with me, find the book, et cetera. All right. Now, URL again was listeningquiz.com? Listeningquiz.com. All right, perfect. Well, I encourage everyone to go there. I am going to follow up and take the listeningquiz.com myself and get my report. I, that I know I will be doing after we're done here. Oscar, uh, gosh, there, as I said, there, this book is so rich. You give the, the reader so many different uh, opportunities and ways to grow. Um, I, I just want to highlight for our listeners, um, there are five levels of listening. And, and much of what we've been talking about um, gets into that first one, which is yourself, listening to yourself and preparing yourself. And so I'd love it if you could, as we're thinking about becoming better listeners uh, and starting with ourselves, what does that mean to listen to yourself first before we're getting to another person involved in all of this? 
Yeah. If you think of an orchestra or a band, any kind of musician, whether they're playing the identical song with the identical band, with the identical instruments in the identical location, and maybe even on the same day, they all go through a ritual before the performance of tuning. In a classic orchestra context, the first violin will lead and commence the process of tuning. It's not just tuning the instrument, it's tuning the mindset of the performer before the conductor comes on stage. Why do they do this? They, they do it as an act of respect. They do it as professionalism. They do it as an act of humility. They don't assume that whatever happened in the last performance is going to happen in the next performance. Yet for most of us, we rock up to a conversation. We don't tune in. We completely distracted. It takes us five minutes to tune into the conversation anyway, and we've reduced the impact of the performance. So when it comes to our listening, the most important instrument we need to prepare for the conversation is not the fancy pants questions Oscar gave you earlier on. It's getting your presence, shutting down the browser tabs in your mind to have memory available so that you can be present for the listener. We know from academic research that your mere presence will change the way the speaker communicates. And if that presence is inviting, if that presence is open, if that presence is curious, if that presence is flexible, it will be a productive dialogue. Yet if that presence is distracted, if that presence is interrupting, if that presence is problem solving, it's not going to be as productive as what it could be. Therefore, when it comes to tuning, again, three simple tips. Number one, manage your notifications. And increasingly, those notifications are getting closer to your body than ever before. In our research, we know in the last two years that connected watches, not just cell phones and WhatsApp notifications and computers, but in fact, that little connected watch that has beeps and buzzes and tells you your heart rate and brings you a text message or whatever it is, those things are as distracting as anything else. Now, I know some people operate in professions where they are on call. They need to be available. I'm not talking to you, but for the vast majority of office workers, you're not that important, seriously. You, you can put your devices into flight mode for the period of the dialogue. And when you do, communicate the fact you have. David, this is an important conversation. I'm just going to switch my notifications off. Now, why am I doing that? <laughs> I'm doing that to give David time to do exactly the same thing. So tip number one, manage your notification. Tip number two, drink a glass of water every 30 minutes and drink a glass of water before the conversation. This will send a signal here to the parasympathetic nervous system, the system that protects your heart and your lungs. So it's calm down, relax, everything's okay. In fact, if you're listening to this conversation right now and you can pause the podcast, get a glass of water, drink it and notice what happens to your body listen carefully, and you will notice you actually calm down. Then finally, tip number three, just take three deep breaths before you go into a conversation. Same signaling to the same parasympathetic nervous system to relax. If your listening battery is really drained and you need to recharge it really quickly, for bonus points, just listen to a song, any song for two minutes, whether that's instrumental or whether that's uh, somebody singing, that will recharge your listening batteries and you'll be available for the conversation as well. Did not realize that was a technique, but I'm realizing that I do use that <laughs> sometimes to recharge my listening batteries. All right. So to managing our notifications, telling people that we're doing that, giving them a chance to do the same and signaling that respect water every 30 minutes and a glass before, and then three deep breaths. All of those last two telling our bodies we're okay. You're okay. Everything's good. We don't have to be stressed about this and using some physical signals there to communicate that. All right. So those are some ways to tune and, and listen to ourselves before we get in. 
Um, let's see here. Where else do I want to go? Maybe have time for one, maybe two more. So uh, let's go. Let's go here. Um, one of the cautions that you describe or, or a caution that you offer in the book is about as we're listening for people's emotions, you caution us about labeling people's emotions. And this is a technique that um, as a listener, I learned a long time ago and it's, it's uh, goes by different names, but checking and like, you know, wow, that sounds like that was a really frustrating experience. And you have some caution about that and some elevated ways of going about that where people are expressing themselves and feeling heard, but where we're not labeling and making assumptions or bringing our, putting our emotional baggage on them, all of that. So I'd like to explore that for just a moment of how do we help people feel heard in that regard at the level of emotion or give people a chance to express it without doing what you talk about, which is making assumptions, putting our emotions on other people. And one of the regular questions we get is, Oscar, how do I listen in emotional conversations? And I always say, every conversation with a human is emotional. Um, what kind of emotion are you referencing? And uh, all of a sudden, the, the conversation becomes a little bit more nuanced. And, uh, oh, you know, I, I struggle when somebody's sharing something and they're angry or I'm uncomfortable when somebody's sharing something and it's difficult for them. And, you know, for many of us, we don't have fluency in our emotional language. You know, there's 96 different emotions that humans experience and Professor Mark Brackett has written a, a, an amazing book on this topic called Permission to Feel, if you want to go and explore this a little bit further. And Professor Brackett would say that you, you want to be careful to notice your emotional reaction to their emotion. He would also say that the fact they're sharing something difficult or something that may be angry for them is a sign of trust. They are trusting you with this conversation. So that's a great starting point for the conversation. It's when they don't tell you that relationships may be damaged. It's mm -hmm. when they don't tell you what really matters to them that as a leader in a workplace, you probably need to have some concerns about that. If people are comfortable about speaking up, you may be operating in an environment where you get blindsided, where you get very inconsistent performance in your organisation. And when people share something emotional with you, it's a beautiful time to go, great, they trust me. Now let's listen to what that emotion is describing. It's not your job to catch it and go, oh, you know, you're not a therapist. Your job is to get them to expand. What does that emotion mean for them? I'm really angry. The way you said that in front of my team member, I felt put down. Now, your job isn't at that point in time to diagnose it or say it was right or wrong. You may simply ask them, and this is a neutral question, are there any other situations where you've noticed me doing that? Now they're feeling heard because they go, oh, they've heard the first one and now they're asking for more. And this is an example of a North's question. It's keeping the conversation going in the same direction. And in that context, once they've described that, what would you like to see changed? not what would you like me to change? Because they may not be asking that at all. And again, that question, what would you like me to change is an example of an assumption that you can fix it. What would you like to see changed is a very neutral version of that question. And they may say, I would like you to do this boss, which is great, but they are saying it, not you. But they may simply say, hey, can you just check in with me before we go into those meetings? because sometimes there are topics that you may not be aware of. Simple. Emotion is just a signal to what matters. Please don't push it away. Please don't avoid it. 
this is a signal that you've developed trust with the person that they can say that to you. Had never considered that before, that those expressions are signals of trust and how powerful that is and how that changes some of the frame of even how our bodies can respond to some of those things when we have that awareness. Mm. Wow. And the other, the other way I've heard it expressed is conflict is the ultimate form of intimacy. Mm. Conflict is the ultimate form of intimacy. Uh, Karen and I are right in the middle. We're, we're two and a half weeks away from delivering a manuscript on conflict in the workplace. I love that phrase. Conflict is a form of intimacy. That's, that's fantastic. Oscar, there is so much more in this book, and I really want to encourage our listeners to, uh, to pick this up. The name of the book, again, is How to Listen, Discover the Hidden Key to Better Communication. Uh, our guest name today, Oscar Trimboli, T-R-I-M-B-O-L-I. And uh, I, one of my favorite chapters that we don't have time to get to, but uh, there's a section where Oscar talks about how um, effective listeners are really good at helping people to uh, influence how speakers tell their story. As Oscar, you, met, you said that earlier, and you give us some questions and help people to explore the backstory and really get those uh, to be just a deeper listener. And so just want to give one more teaser. We're not going to get into it, but one more teaser for uh, so much of the great content that's in this book and a tremendous resource for all of our listeners. We're listening today. We can be better listeners at work. So Oscar, the final question I want to ask you, if you can leave us, is with guidance for our listeners who are hearing all of this and going, wow, this is deep. I'm recognizing I have a lot of opportunity. Where's the best place for us to begin? If I want to be a better listener with all of your research and all your expertise, what's the first thing I should do to get started? Manage your electronic notifications. And whether you use a Mac or a PC, an iPhone or Android, there is one button that can switch all the notifications off on all your devices. And there is another button, which is usually right next to it, which will turn off all those notifications when your calendar has got a meeting in it. We know from the research and the people we've been tracking over the last five years, that one tip will help you become available to the conversation. The next tip, drink a glass of water. Next tip, take three deep breaths. Those three things are easy to say. They're difficult to practice. You need to master that first one, electronic notifications. And once you do, everything else will be unlocked. And that is the key to better communication. There you have it. All right. Be the leader you want your boss to be. Get started today. Manage those notifications. Switch them off for your conversations. Water and take those three deep breaths. Oscar, thank you so much for being a guest today on uh, Leadership Without Losing Your Soul. This has truly been a uh, mind-expanding, skill-expanding, uh, beautiful conversation. And I'm, uh, I'm going to have to re-listen to it and get out there and take your quiz. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.